0: So, I'm in my final year as an internal medicine resident, and honestly, I have no clue what I'm going to do next year. The problem is, I'm a generalist at heart. I want to have my hands in a bit of everything. And when it comes to forks in the road, choosing one path and cutting off the others, that's hard for me. So for my sake, and for the sake of all the other generalists out there, CORE-IM and the American College of Physicians are kicking off a series looking at careers in general internal medicine, or GIM. I'm Michael Shen. Here's the episode.
1: Everybody here chose to go into general internal medicine. The question is why?
2: If you're going to encounter a doctor in a barbershop, you wanted to be a general internist,
3: a trusted guide, an expert, a healer.
1: It was sort of the liberal arts of
4: medicine. It's always good to have a kind of a north star and a goal, thinking like, this is my vision, this is where I want to be.
0: Today's episode is about GIM research careers. You're going to hear from four generalists whose research makes up a large part of what they do. I chose these stories in clips because I thought they illustrated important points about career making, something I know very little about at this point. I feel like a lot of people go to medical school and residency thinking they're going to be clinicians. So how did these doctors pivot into doing research and making a career out of it? When did they know? Here's Dr. Francesca Ganey, who tells her story.
1: During residency, at that time, it was clear to me that I needed to do something to address the disparities in care that you would get based on whether you you got admitted to the private hospital or you got admitted to Bellevue.
0: Bellevue is actually the oldest public hospital in New York City. It's where I trained today and where Dr. Ganey trained in the late 1980s.
1: So there was a new group of immigrants, immigrants from Senegal, who had just come to New York. It was a new migration. And they um, were working long hours peddling watches on the street. Street. They were living in a single room occupancy hotel on 27th Street. So when they got ill, they would go down the street and they would arrive at the Bellevue ER. And there was a group of like 40 guys who came to the Bellevue ER all complaining of the same sets of symptoms. It was um, abdominal pain radiating around their waist and their backs, and they were in a lot of distress.
0: So by the time they're sent to her in primary care clinic, they've already gotten this full workup through the ER like abdominal films, barium swallows, even. And it's all negative, but they're still in a lot of distress. And so she feels like there has to be something else going on that's causing this mystery abdominal pain. And she does something that we should all do in this situation, which is consult somebody who's even smarter than ourselves. So she goes to her director, this guy named Mac Lipkin, who's actually Dr. Lipkin, and he's actually still the head of my primary care track today. And he also happens to be one of the founders of the Society for General Internal Medicine.
1: And he suggested that I enlist the aid of an anthropologist who had worked in Senegal, in West Africa, And that we try to find out what more was going on with the community members. And through that work, going out into the community, asking our patients, we found out that there was a syndrome in Senegal called TOI. It happened when people were removed from their familiar surroundings, when they were working too hard, when they didn't have their usual support structure, which exactly described what was going on with this group of new immigrants who were working such long hours, removed from their family.
0: And she figures out what they do in Senegal to help Treat it, and that's by taking something called kel, which is a gelatinous substance from a tree. And then they would have a healer that they would talk to, and the community would come and surround them to help ease some of their work burden.
1: We were the healers because none of the healers had come over yet from Senegal. So I would see them in clinic. They would take some gelatinous remedies, um, and sometimes I would get on the phone with the healer in Senegal to do a session with the guys and. One by one, they got better. And I realized that if this was going on with this this small immigrant community, what was going on with all of the other immigrant groups in New York?
0: At this point, her mentor, Dr. Lipkin, suggests that she gather a group of people to discuss immigrant health issues in New York City, nudging her in the direction of what's basically the rest of her career. It sounds like a clear path looking back, but it's fair to say she didn't know it at the time.
1: And out of that, formed something called the New York Task Force on Immigrant Health, which later became the Center for Immigrant Health at Bellevue. She's
0: now the director of the Immigrant Health and Cancer Disparities Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is just uptown from Bellevue. She's built a career of research that focuses on patient and community level interventions to bridge immigrant populations to the healthcare system and facilitate health equity. She does work on language barriers, financial barriers, food insecurity, and a bunch of systems-level stuff.
1: Try to get people better access to care and to have better health outcomes.
0: Thinking back to careers, I think it's easy to get hung up on the fact that she's got this really cool story. And very often I find myself asking, where's my story? But I don't think you need to have a great story in order to justify a career. I think she tells it, and it's a good one but she tells it because it really clearly shows us what drives her.
1: I think my biggest lesson um, from all of that was something that Mac really inspired in me, which was to follow my passion and to really do what you love and what drives you, because when you're doing what you love, you do the best job at it.
0: And I was actually talking about this with the creator of Core I Am, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and she, I think, put it really well. She said well, how do you catch the research bug? Uh, And the answer is you follow what bugs you. Uh, So, you know, Dr. Ganey, that's exactly what she did. She followed a line of questioning through to the very end. And I think our next story illustrates that you don't really have to know where you're going to end up in order to start. The voice that you're going to hear is that of Dr. Joseph Ravenel, who's the director of diversity and research at the Perlmutter Cancer Center. He's best known for studying disparities in healthcare for black men in America. His research actually takes place in quite an unconventional setting, the barbershop. He basically found that when barbers offered blood pressure checks along with their haircuts, their customers had better controlled blood pressures. In his 2016 TED Talk, which you guys should listen to, he talks about the importance of the barbershop as a safe haven for black men, where they can openly discuss all kinds of topics, including their health. I really wanted to know how he caught his research bug. And it turns out that he started doing community based work before he even knew that he was doing it.
2: So, uh, it's important to know that I am the son of two ministers. I'm what's called a PK or preacher's kid. I uh, grew up um, in church and basically uh, tagging along uh, with my parents as they ministered to people with a whole set of needs.
0: Many of the times, he went to visit sick church members in their homes and attend to their spiritual needs. Sometimes, he even found himself going to hospitals.
2: They probably had different rules back then about kids being allowed to just show up on a uh, hospital ward. Uh, the one thing that I learned fairly quickly was that um, I did not like hospitals very much.
0: But, he says... Taking care of people ultimately appealed to him.
2: I figured out very quickly that I was not cut out for the uh, cloth, um, so to speak, but did see uh, healthcare as a ministry in and of itself. So I, uh, from day one, the day that I decided that I wanted to be a doctor, knew that I wanted to do a primary care. And so he goes
0: to medical school. In the summer after his first year, he starts to feel that kind of pressure to do a summer research project.
2: But knew at that time already that I hated bench research, like hate with a passion. But I had the good fortune of meeting a uh, mentor as I was coming out of the uh, dean's office. This African-American man with just incredible presence uh, kind of walks into the main lobby of our science building. And as the kind of unicorn that he was at my uh, medical school, I felt compelled to introduce myself to him. Uh, And at the time, I found that he had just finished a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars uh, program. And he had an interest in and figuring out why black men underutilize uh, primary healthcare.
0: And sure enough, he was planning a research project and asked Dr. Ravenel if he wanted to be involved. He said yes, and that summer he and two other med students basically figured out by themselves how to do a qualitative research study.
2: We ran 10 focus groups, we recruited for them, we moderated them, uh, and we ultimately uh, transcribed and uh, analyzed them all within this this one summer. The 10 focus groups uh, were all basically different subgroups of uh, black men, uh, younger men, older men, church-going men, Uh, HIV positive men essentially trying to figure out what they think about health and what barriers they've experienced trying to access um, healthcare.
0: And And they found that the black men they talked to had a very broad view of health that included more than just a good blood pressure or having a controlled blood sugar or not being overweight.
2: But it included things like you know, being able to live in a safe neighborhood where you have access to healthy food and you can actually commune with your neighbors and get to uh, know them. Um, And so it was really my first introduction to kind of the social determinants of of health and in that experience i also realized my love for talking to adults and this was so eye-opening to me because at that time i had no idea that you could do research and actually it would involve people as opposed to uh, mice and rats so this i was like wow you know research
0: and i kind of wish i had the same enthusiasm about research earlier in my journey But if his story shows me anything, it's that you never really know where that beginning actually is. And that's why the longer I spend producing this episode, the more I feel like careers are made in retrospect. When you look back to his roots ministering to people in the community, his
2: current research makes so much sense. I wanted to essentially uh, create a career where I could reproduce that feeling of being on the front row, uh, of figuring out how... All of these components of people's lives um, affect their uh, health.
0: And it turns out Um, that the study he did that summer, the results uh, actually made their way all the way to the Chicago city government.
2: And they were so compelled by the uh, findings that they actually gave us funding to open up a black men's clinic.
0: They named it Project Brotherhood, and it took into account a lot of the things that they found in their study.
2: And so that was really when I was kind of bitten by the research bug, to really understand that uh, through a career in research, you can have an impact on more than just the patient sitting in front of you in your office.
0: And there's another part to the story that I think is really worth highlighting, which is that you never know who you're going to bump into along the way. And it really matters. You know, there's there's a lot of times where I feel like I don't know who to talk to for guidance. What if Dr. Ravenel hadn't run into that mentor outside of the dean's office? And so I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the utter importance of representation in medicine, especially in our current political and social climate. The pandemic highlights the fact that Black Americans experience some of the worst healthcare outcomes. And while they make up 13% of the U.S. population, only 6% of doctors are black. And you realize that this problem is circular because black faculty members say that a lack of mentorship and sponsorship, as well as racist work environments and the lack of anti-racist policies, factor into a high attrition rate among black faculty in academic medicine. It was important in Dr. Ravenel's story to find someone who he saw himself in and create a career where he could reproduce a feeling that he loved. That of talking to people and making an impact for his community. That North Star is so important because the truth is that research careers can be really tough. And that's where Dr. Melanie Jay is going to take us next. She's going to talk about some of the practical topics and road bumps that you face when you go into a research career.
4: I mean, my husband thinks I'm crazy. He's like, well, how many grants do you write for everyone you get? Or like, why are you doing all this? Couldn't if you went into industry get like, you know, why don't you get Bill Gates to fund you? You know, Or like, (laughs) like, why? Why are you doing this?
0: Dr. J is an obesity and nutrition researcher. She co-directs NYU's comprehensive program on obesity. Her research is currently funded by a few big R01 grants, which is no small feat. These are large grants that people dream of getting. But it wasn't always that way. She says she started not only outside of the research arena, but also late to the game.
4: I hadn't had any publications, had not done any research before residency. A lot of people who go into research kind of have been grooming themselves or being groomed to do research the whole time. And, and during residency, I did not have the bandwidth to do a lot of research until my you know, third year and chief year. And so I had a lot of catching up to do.
0: So, after her chief year, she took a faculty role working full-time as a clinician educator at one of the clinics affiliated with her institution. And while she loved seeing patients as a primary care doctor, she wanted to carve out more time for her own research interests. But there's a problem. Institutions and hospitals prefer to compensate doctors for patient care, aka clinical time, at least until you can prove your worth as something else. So Dr. J was told that her research time would have to come out of her allotted precepting and admin time, which is essentially all the time outside of patient care, where she can run cases with residents and follow up on her own patient's lab results. This is something that a lot of people in academic medicine face, the battle for what's called protected time, the time you can use to shape your own schedule and pursue the things you're interested in like obesity research in Dr. J's case.
4: And so I was kind of starting to find it very frustrating and very difficult to try to do the clinic but do academic research. And and at the same time, I had a very difficult pregnancy. I didn't know if the babies were gonna survive and luckily everything turned out well. Um, I had twin boys and I was on bed rest uh, for about 15 weeks. had gotten advice way back that I needed to do a fellowship to really get protected time and mentorship and more credentials to really learn how to do research and, and also have the credentials that people will want to give me money to do research. And so I actually left and I took a major pay cut and did uh, and did a two-year research fellowship at NYU. Um, being in a research fellowship was a lot more flexible than, than having seen patients every, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. From there, I really learned the ropes and and was able to build upon a, a research career.
0: And that fight for protected time doesn't end there. When you become a clinician researcher, you have to buy out time to do research. And that's when grants come in.
4: After I did my fellowship, I was able to kind of piece together some funding while I was trying to write a career development award.
0: Career development awards are grants that are available through organizations like the NIH and the VA. As an example, the NIH offers K awards, which support junior investigators by funding maybe 75% of their salary for up to five years. This is money to do research, but more importantly, what it means is freedom and flexibility.
4: So you can really get your foot in the door. and They're very competitive, but they're really important to get as a signal that you can do this.
0: And to speak to Dr. J's accomplishments, she ends up getting her K award and then two R01 awards, which is like the next step up. But the journey continues to be an uphill battle.
4: So you're never like there, like you're always having to kind of keep going and thinking, okay, well maybe I'll try this direction or this direction, or what will happen if I don't get funding? Like maybe I'll go back to clinical or maybe I'll, you know, decide whether I want to like take a pay cut and try to keep up my protected time.
0: And not only that, you have to face a lot of rejection.
4: We've put in so many grants this year and and none of them have come through, you know, and it's a lot of work every time. It's a lot of rejection. And I I have people submitting papers, and two days later, they get a rejection. And I'm just like, I'm so glad they rejected us so quickly, because then we can just like turn it around, you know, instead of waiting three months and getting rejected.
0: And then she tells me her worst rejection story.
4: So I wrote a a good proposal and actually got a good score. So really good. So I was like waiting, I figured I was going to get it. and, um, And I didn't hear anything. And then and finally, like, I called the project office. I'm like, you know, everyone else has gotten their paperwork. And she called me back while I was, like, walking to the subway. She's like, well, I think the reviewers were too nice to you. And so we decided not to give it to you and we give it to someone more deserving. And this is, like, years of work. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? You know, like... What do you mean I didn't deserve it? I felt like I was like trying not to start crying, you know, on the the sidewalk. I was really pissed and really upset. So I'm so used to rejection that I could just be like, that's so good. We just we found out now we can like do something else. So to do research, you you have to not have people's rejection of your ideas, of your writing, of anything um, like get to you.
0: So at this point, I've realized that research definitely has its pain points. And it makes me wonder, what keeps people going in this field? And what do you have to do to become a successful researcher?
3: When I sit down with a fellow, when I sit down with a faculty member-
0: This is Dr. Mark Schwartz, who's actually Dr. Jade's former mentor and the program director of her GIM Research Fellowship.
3: I tell people that what they need to do is to provide a compelling history of a sustained commitment to an idea, Um, that they're advancing the science in an area. To be successful as a researcher,
0: you need to learn how to write science for money. When I first heard him say this, boiling it down to writing science for money, it made me feel like this was some kind of business venture, which is not how I like to think about research that benefits health. But in hearing about the real world of research, how tough it is, I get it. Selling your idea, selling your passion, is part of fighting for what you believe is meaningful.
3: You need to be able to sell your ideas to people who will pay you to do the work that you want to do, to solve the problems that matter. And I realized that early on when I got my first grant, it was such a huge opportunity to be able to carve out that time. Now I had a good chunk of my time that I could devote to thinking and reading and writing and, and doing the science. Um, and that autonomy is a real privilege as, a, as an academic and it was sort of addicting.
0: But Um, while he recommends what sounds like a straightforward, strategic approach to careers, Dr. Schwartz himself admits that his own experience was not typical. I was not particularly strategic um, growing up as
3: a fellow or junior faculty member um, in the that I advise people to be strategic now. And I think I need to start by acknowledging that um, I do this and have done this as a as a white man of privilege. My own path has been anything but the kinds of recommendations I typically
0: make to people to be successful now. So I, I think that's important as a caveat. And in particular, he talks about his career path as a path of many fellowships. He doesn't mean fellowship in the way of like a formal fellowship, but rather he means that these are phases of learning in his life. And I think this idea sounds to me, being the generalist that I am, really, really interesting. I think uh, this opportunity
3: to do multiple fellowships in one's life and career is not completely unique to general internal medicine, of course, but there is something about being a generalist uh, where my job is to be a super learner all the time, to um, pull things together, synthesize and learn new things quickly, Uh, to focus on learning physical exam skills, to uh, my educational skills. Later on in my career, I took on health policy as an associate professor at the time and spent a year in Washington being a part of this professional staff on the Ways and Means Committee in the U.S. House in 2009 and 10 when we passed the Affordable Care Act. I've also done sort of health services research and, you know, dove into deep learning. And now in my 60s, I'm doing my first clinical randomized drug trial in the COVID era. So it's kind of, I've done many fellowships over my career. And the truth is, it only makes sense in retrospect. I remember seeing a, just an unbelievable grand rounds presentation when I was a junior faculty member. And I went up to the person afterwards and I said, how did you do that? How did you build such a beautiful, logical, rational sequence of studies that, that led you to this place? And he said what I just
0: said. That it's only obvious in
3: retrospect.
0: <laughs> I love this idea <laughs> of careers really only making sense when you look back in time, because when you hear about successful researchers, there's this kind of fallacy at play. You see only the stuff that worked out and not the stuff that didn't.
3: I want to talk a little bit about my failure CV because I, I don't think we do that enough. I work with fellows to say. Great, you got a rejection, let's move on. <laughs> Before the sun sets tomorrow, let's hit send on, on that to another journal. That's, that's a skin that gets thickened over time. I had a year, maybe four or five years ago, where I wrote 10 grants and got zero. And that happens, that happens to senior successful researchers. Uh, and it's absolutely part of the game. And it, it is hard, it has gotten harder.
0: And there are a few uh, tips he gives for aspiring researchers. The first is to get involved with the greater community.
3: I would go to ACP every year. I'd go to SGIM every year.
0: That is the conferences for the American College of Physicians and the Society for General Internal Medicine.
3: And ACP would nourish my clinical soul and SGIM would nourish my academic soul. Uh, I mean, you may have already experienced this as, a, as junior people. You go to these meetings and, oh, my God, that's so-and-so or, oh, my God. <laughs> They just wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine and you could just go up and talk to them and get their take and their advice on things. I found that that community of academic scholars, researchers, educators has become such a valuable touch point for me. But that's also a very important way to cope with the vicissitudes of of rejections and failures because there's a whole big world of people going through it with you.
0: And in many cases, he also recommends doing a formal GIM research fellowship.
3: Uh, I think the most vital thing is to bake into your life as early as possible the opportunity to dive deep in a research fellowship. And what it gives you are really um, three things. One is that it gives you the fallow time to go down the rabbit holes and read and read and write and rewrite and rewrite. And you have the time to do that second thing is that it gives you formal education to build your methodological muscles and your chops because uh, you need to be able to understand the processes and the and to do it right to do it rigorous and the third is it gives you a network of colleagues and mentors and over time mentoring is critical nowadays Uh, The most successful people are the ones who find environments where mentoring is a value, where they will have a person or hopefully a committee, a team of people who are devoted to them, who will show them tough love, who will call them on their shit and uh, help them uh, connect socially and connect academically uh, and push them to stay true to their
0: commitments. So one of the things I found most poignant in listening to all of these stories is that there's always an underlying drive. Even for an academic with many hats, like Dr. Schwartz, he says his drive is quite simple.
3: I still wear a stethoscope uh, one day a week at the VA, um, and that informs everything else that I do. That's the most central part of who I am as a professional and everything else, my education work, my mentoring, my research Um, always goes back to that.
0: And I saw a similar thread in each of our speakers, in Dr. Ganey's commitment to working with immigrant communities that was rooted in her residency experience, in Dr. Ravenel's focus on bringing healthcare directly to his community, a habit not so much picked up as ascribed to him in his ministerial upbringing. And as for Dr. J, I mean,
4: right, I went to college and I thought, Maybe I'd be a psychologist, and I took all these behavioral science courses. She
0: actually started her career in psychology and is now on a completely different path, but still works with psychologists to create motivational interventions to address obesity. You
4: no, know, these things that you spend time on kind of circle back and, and still stay relevant.
0: Just like Dr. J, I'd say that none of the routes that our speakers took to get where they are now were predictable. But in listening to them, I did pick up some common concepts for aspiring researchers, including the importance of mentorship and community, the ubiquity and utter normalcy of failure and rejection, and the value of being able to write science for money and to obtain that precious protected time. But in the end, what I found most inspiring and perhaps relieving is that there are different paths to the same summit. And the thing that drives you up that mountain is a commitment to topics that you're interested in, Letting those passions drive the career decisions you make is critical. And hopefully, the summit that we ultimately find is a career with work that fulfills us. This show was partly recorded during a Proud to be GIM career panel with additional interviews by myself and Dr. Shreya Trivedi. A big thanks to Drs. Francesca Ganey, Joseph Ravenel, Melanie Jay, and Mark Schwartz, for sharing their stories, experiences, and insights. Stay tuned for our next career episode.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day.